Crosspoint Community Church. We are here to help each other worship, live, and rescue like Jesus. For more info on who we are, go to cpmodesto.org. Continuing our Close and Faithful series, and last week and this week we're talking about prayer. And I got a little, start off with a little poll. Is that okay? Take a little poll. And you just have to promise me you're going to be super honest, okay? Because I'm going to make you raise your hand. And you better be honest or else I'll know. Uh, I think there's a couple different types of prayers, like how people pray in the world. I think there are those who like plan their prayer times. Like I, I, there's a time every day I'm gonna meet with the Lord and pray and I know the way I go about my prayer and how I get led through that prayer. They, they plan, they're prayer planners, they're planner prayers, okay? And then there are probably those who are a little bit more like, I mean, this probably isn't a nice way to say it, but like the Hail Mary prayers. Like, um, just as, it's not Hail Mary, it's just as, as the day goes, I pray as it comes to my mind and heart. So all throughout the day, you're like, man, Lord, uh, you know, it just came to me and I need to pray to you about it. And you call out to the Lord just all throughout your day. Now, we're gonna take a poll. How many of you are the planner prayers? Okay, I got a few hands in the room, yeah, okay. How many of you, this is where you gotta be honest, okay, because this isn't bad, this isn't bad. Guys, this isn't bad. How many of you are like, as the day goes on, you just kind of pray as needed? It just happens. Yeah, same in, same in the last service. Way more hands on that one. Okay, so here's the question. Which one of those is superior to the others? No, which, which, one, of those, which one of those is right? You got, oh, both services. Knocked it out of the park. You guys are smart. Both. Both. In a relationship you have with other people, do you plan times to get together, spend time and grow that relationship? Yeah, I hope so. But is it just the planned thing? Like, so if someone shows up that you have a relationship with and they show up out of the blue and you weren't planning on it, and they're like, hey, Travis, to, no. <laughs> we didn't plan this. I'm not talking to you right now. No, no, no. Like, we bump into each other and we build that relationship like out of happenstance as well, right? The beautiful thing about that with our relationships this way is that it really does map on a lot to our relationship this way. It's both planned and spontaneous. And, and, and that's not the big point. The big point is we have a God who loves us so much that he invites that. I wanna be with you regularly and I want to plan times to be together, but I also am waiting for you just to call out to me when your heart is there. What an amazing father we have, amen? He is so good. We're gonna start in Matthew chapter six, starting at verse seven this morning. I love this portion of Jesus, kind of this prelude to the Lord's Prayer. We're gonna be working through the Lord's Prayer. Uh, Y'all might know that prayer, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, and it goes on. Some people call it the Our Father Prayer, but it's uh, referred to as the Lord's Prayer oftentimes. We're gonna be working through that today, but I wanna read, I wanna back up just a little bit from that prayer and see what Jesus says about God the Father before we go into this, because it's so important. Verse seven, and when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. Get this, soak this in. 
for your father knows what you need before you ask him. When I read Jesus' words that your father knows what you need before you ask him, I am amazed at how much God loves us. Now, if, if you were in a room with someone, if you were just uh, Jeffrey Chapman, you're gonna finish the sermon. No, I'm joking. Um, <clears throat> if we were in a room together and you weren't looking at me and I said, hey, Jeffrey, what would you do? Yeah, you'd look at me, you'd put your attention towards me and say, yes, Travis, yes, friend, how are you? What do you need? Anything for you. <laughs> it, right? Okay, good. I was hoping that's, that you'd agree with me. If not, we'd have to talk afterwards. A normal, decent person as Jeffrey is would, when you address them, turn their attention towards you when you address them, right? And, and respond to your addressing them, correct? We all on the same page here? Right. That's what a normal, decent person would do. Now, let me tell you a little story. It's a little bit different than that. I was at home uh, several weeks back, I don't remember when it was, and my daughter May, who's nine years old, was sitting there doing something, I think it was at the kitchen table or something. She was just sitting there working on a project or some art and being super cute. Just, I was watching her face. She was, you know, concentrating and she's got that concentration face going on and super cute, okay? I was just eating it up. So I'm in the kitchen, I'm just doing something. So I just kind of stopped what I was doing. I was just kind of watching her. I didn't mean to, I just kind of was because it was entertaining and cute and she's wonderful. Anyways, enough about that. She's wonderful. So I was walking, just watching her do what she was doing. And then uh, as she was doing it, she was like, at some point in time, realized she needed to ask me something. She looks up and goes, hey, dad. And she looks up at me and she sees that I'm already staring at her. (laughs) And she's like, why are you just sitting staring at me? (laughs) I was like, well, you were just being cute and I was just enjoying watching you and, you know, all that good stuff. And she, I believe her uh, exact response was, that's weird. And she didn't even ask me what she was at. She just went back to her work. And Without the weird part that she thought, in many ways, that's, I think, our experience with God. Jesus is saying he knows what you need before you even ask. So when we turn our attention to God and say, our Father, we find that he's already looking in our direction, already staring at us, and already actually has what we need in his hands. It's even better than him turning his attention to us when we call him. His attention's already on us. I'm not stretching that. That's what Jesus is saying. You don't have to jump up and down and say a bunch of words like the Gentiles do to try to get his attention, just to be important enough or make enough movement so that he will get, give you his attention. He's, you've already got it. If you ever felt that God was tolerating you, Put that to bed right now. Put that to death right now. Your Father in heaven loves you, desires you, and is already focused on you even when you're not on him. If you ever thought God was far off and distant, you cannot read the words of Jesus and keep believing that. Our Father has his attention on us. It's amazing. The picture we see of God here is that his attention is turned towards us, not just when we initiate, but already before we initiate. Last week, Matt said this. He said, God is eager to hear from us because his goal is intimacy with us. 
God wants to be close to us. The truth is so important. That truth is so important for us as context to the prayer that Jesus is going to teach us. He's gonna teach us this prayer, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, and so on and so forth. And that context of the love and attention of God that we already have is so important to this. It says so much about who God is, who we are, and who we and God are together. This is how the king's people talk to their father king. This prayer is the heart and the truth of how the king's people talk to the father king. Read with me in verse nine. Jesus says, pray then like this, our father in heaven. Stop, full stop. Our father, our father. It's so easy to brush past those first two words. It's just like, an address, like, oh, you know, call, call him whatever. No, 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 no. Jesus invites us to treat his father as our father. Now, for many of us in this room, the idea of father or dad may not be a really positive idea. For me growing up, it wasn't. I didn't have a good relationship with my dad or my stepdad. It was very strained at best. And so the ideas I have of fatherhood over me are not exactly encouraging. But let me ask you something. Did my dad, does he define fatherhood or does God define fatherhood? Yeah, my dad did not create fatherhood. My father in heaven created fatherhood. And it's his character and who he is that defines fatherhood for us. Even if you had a good dad, a really good dad, he doesn't even scratch the surface of how wonderful our father in heaven is. And we're invited to treat God as our father. When you pray and you say, dear father or our father, don't lose the wonder that you are able to call out to the God of the universe who made everything, who is sovereign over all things, who spoke and stars and everything that is burst into existence. That being, you get to call daddy. It's beautiful. Jesus invites us to call his father our father. So if you don't think God wants to be close to you, think again. You see, the religious elite of Jesus' day were very touchy about this. Jesus called God his father in John 5. And when Jesus called God his father, uh, the religious elite of that day wanted to kill him for it. It says they sought a way to kill him because they thought he was making himself equal to God. Well, he is, he is God. So this would not have been normal in Jesus' day. This invitation to talk to God as our Father would have been groundbreaking, would have been something very new, not unheard of, but very, very fresh and new and even provocative. But Jesus invites us to address God as his Father and not only that, he says, our Father in heaven, our Father in heaven. 
Genesis 1.1 says, in the beginning, God created the, you can talk, you can say it, in, thank, wonderful. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He created what's up there, the, 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 the realm where spirits live, the spiritual realm, and what's down here where earthlings live. You, me, giraffes, lizards, amoebas. There's what's up there, the, the place where the spiritual realm is inhabited by spirits, and the place down here. That's how they conceived of it. The heavens, what's up there, what we can't touch, that's where those spirits live, and we live in a place where earthlings live. And Jesus says, our Father who's in heaven. This prayer is recognizing that God is the king of the realm that reigns above our realm. He doesn't just reign above our realm. He reigns above the realm that reigns above our realm. He is so powerful, so majestic, and yet we get to talk to him. The Lord's Prayer is requesting that the high king of heaven, the high king above every realm, would draw close and be sovereign and powerful over the affairs of earth. Don't just reign there. Here. Be powerful in reigning here, our Father in heaven that heaven and earth would overlap and the kingdom of God would invade the kingdom of man. When we pray to our Father in heaven, that's what we are asking. Would you let your reign overlap with earth and reign here? And now we're gonna enter into this part one of this prayer. We've talked about the address, our Father in heaven, but then there's two parts, each with three requests. And the first three requests are about the worship and reign of God. Halfway through verse nine, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. We don't use that word hallowed very much, do we? I mean, it's just like in regular speech, you're talking to people, you go to the mechanic and you're like, oh, it's just a hallowed day. My car was broken, but I'm expecting you to make it all hallowed again. We don't speak that way and use that word very often, do we? What does it even mean? I love how the Christian standard version of the Bible, it's a great version if you need to read the Bible in something fresh, but also very accurate. How that renders it is, your name be honored as holy. In biblical times, you see, a name wasn't just your reputation or what you signed on a, a document. Your name was an extension of your very being as you interact with others. So your name be honored, God, isn't just about people speak well of you. It's asking, so asking for God's name to be hallowed is longing for people to have a reaction of reverence and honor as they encounter God, as they encounter the living God, that there would be a response of honor reverence and worship of him. Why do we ask that? Because when we look across this earth, it is not true. When we look across this earth, God is not reverenced. God is not held as holy. Many don't even believe he exists, and there's lots of reasons for that. But we want God 
and who he is when people come into contact with him to have a response of he is great, worthy of worship. Jesus' disciples want their father to be worshiped above, beyond, and before we want anything else. He says in verse 10, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come. But hasn't the kingdom of Jesus already come? Have you ever heard of this idea of already but not yet? There's another space or term for it called liminal space. Have you ever even heard that? Liminal space. It's a space between. So like when I walk and stand in, in a doorway between my hallway and a bedroom, and someone says, are you in the bedroom? My answer would be what? Yes and no, kind of. They said, are you in the hallway? Yes and no. It's a space in between. Already I'm in the bedroom, but kind of, sort of, not yet. Also, a liminal space would be like when my wife was pregnant with her first daughter and Mother's Day came around and Charlotte's still pregnant with her. And I'm like, do I get her a card? (laughs) Yeah, you you better. (laughs) If you know what's good for you, Travis. Uh, And someone came up afterwards last time and said, well, did you get her a card? Because I didn't answer. Yes, I did. I wrote her a nice note. I think I even got her something. I don't totally remember. But... um, Is she a mom? Yeah, but the baby's not born yet, so kinda. We find this already but not yet experience in scripture all the time. Jesus in Matthew 4, 17, he commands people to repent. His message was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What does it mean that something is at hand? It's here, it's happened. It's, it's, it is present. The kingdom of heaven is present here on earth. Why would Jesus come and say the kingdom of heaven is present? It is here. Why would Jesus say that? Because he's here. The king came to earth, and the king being here means that the kingdom has come. But is, has it come in its fullness? No. Already, but not yet. See, we see Jesus instructing his disciples in this prayer to ask God for his kingdom to come. And this sets up that tension of already but not yet. The kingdom of heaven has arrived, but now must spread globally. And it does not spread in the same way that earthly kingdoms do. How do earthly kingdoms spread? Violence. Anyone been reading the news or watching the news about Russia and Ukraine? They're, they're not going to try to take Ukraine over, um, you know, playing Monopoly. What are they going to use? Soldiers and guns and bombs and violence. This is not how the kingdom of God spreads on the earth. And kingdoms of the earth are geographically defined. You can draw a map and draw boundaries around them geographically. That's not how the kingdom of God is defined. You know how the kingdom of God is defined? By every single human heart that is bowed to King Jesus. So when you get up in the morning, draw a circle around your feet and say, the kingdom of God is here. If you trust Jesus, 
You are an outpost of the kingdom of God. And even better, when you come together with other Christians who love and have bowed their knee to King Jesus, you can draw a circle around you guys and say, the kingdom of God is here. You are an outpost of the kingdom of God. And we want that circle to get bigger and bigger and bigger until the whole world knows, loves, and bows to Jesus. Your kingdom come. And he says, your will be done. Your will be done. What you want, may it be done. This is also an already but not yet tension that is established by the contrast of the two realms, heaven and earth. Remember, in Genesis 1, the two realms, God created the heavens, what's up there, and the earth, what's down here. The abode of spiritual beings and the abode of physical beings of earthlings. God created both, but right now there is a disparity between those realms with how the will of God is responded to. It's two different cultures. When I was in, I think, fourth grade, I went and spent the night at my buddy James's house for the very first time. And I was, of course, very used to the way things ran in my house. You know, very loving, gracious, giving, generous environment. Um, but my mom was in charge, man. My mom was in charge. Hmm. Went to James's house. Mm, no. The kids ruled the roost in that house. We, we ate dinner, and we had dessert, and then we were going, hanging out, watching TV, and then James says to his dad, who's just waiting off in the wings, just waiting for a command, James says, we're still hungry. What do you want? Taco Bell. His dad drove the Taco Bell and got us dinner number two. And I'm sitting here being like, what's happening? They're just waiting around to receive order from their kids and then they drive to Taco Bell. They already gave us dinner. Like in my house, dinner was dinner, man. No second dinner. Finish your food and if you're still hungry, there's always breakfast. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm sitting here just thinking, what kind of alternate reality have I stepped into here? And then the, the, the movies that they let us pick from to watch, I'm like, they're PG-13. I was like, I'm not 13. We don't watch PG-13. And I mean, it, it was getting a little crazy when we watched Goonies. That was PG, and they say some swears in that movie. So he picks out, I think it was Breakfast Club. The Breakfast Club, remember that movie? And, and like, we're fourth graders. And I'm like, the whole time, he and the other guys are watching the movie, and I'm just like trying to do anything else. I'm like, I don't think I'm supposed to be watching this yet. I was like, because I, 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 that's not how it works in my house. It was two different, very different cultures. And I experienced culture shock when I went to his house. You see, in heaven, the abode of spiritual beings, God already reigns supreme. And when he speaks, his angelic servants respond in immediate and joyful obedience. Not only do they do what he wants, they want to. And they receive joy from it. Doing the will of God is the culture of heaven. But it's not currently the culture of earth. And so when we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. 
saying, God, we want the culture of heaven to invade the culture of earth. And he says, on earth as it is in heaven. We want it to be down here the same way it is up there. And I think this phrase is attached to all three of the requests we've also already seen. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I think that final phrase defines what we're asking. We want your name to be worshiped. We want your kingdom to come. We want your will to be done here like it is there, complete and total. We ask God that the culture of heaven would overtake the culture of earth. And by asking, we are requesting that he include us in this great work. We don't just ask him, say, do it, and I'm not a part of it. No, we joyfully say, God, yes, would you be worshiped? Would your kingdom come? Would your will be done? But let me have a piece of that pie. Let me be part of this. Let me, let me just have a little bit of making that happen today. Oh, Father, I want to be a worshiper of you today. And I want what I do and what I value to be your kingdom reigning on this earth. And when you speak, I want to obey. And I want to inspire others to obey and do what you want. And I take joy in it here on earth as it is in heaven. And so this first section is Jesus giving us an invite, invitation into the mission of God here on earth that our heavenly Father would rule and be worshiped across the earth. And now when Jesus moves on into the second section, Jesus invites us to make some personal requests to God. But there's a reason that these personal requests come after the first ones about his worship and reign on earth. It's because these requests for ourselves are subordinate and serve the purpose of the first ones. Give us this day our daily bread. Under the umbrella of God, be worshiped. Your kingdom come and your will be done. Forgive us so that you will be worshiped and your kingdom will come and your will will be done. Lead us not into temptation so that you will be worshiped and your kingdom will come and your will will be done our personal requests serve the request for God's worship. The heart of a disciple should be growing to the place where we want the worship, kingdom, and will of God to be the reality even more than our own personal needs and wants. This is not because God doesn't care about our personal needs. Oh, he does. Remember what Jesus said. When you pray, you don't have to get God's attention. He's already there looking at you. And when you ask him, he already knows what you need even before you ask. God cares deeply about your needs. So deeply, more deeply than you've ever considered. So our needs being subordinate to the kingdom mission it's not because God doesn't care about our personal needs. It's because he knows and wants us to know that his will happening on earth is our ultimate need. 
There's nothing better for you and I than for God to reign supreme on this earth. There is no better situation than God ruling this whole earth. Amen? Having all of our needs met in a world where God isn't on his way to set all things right is completely pointless. It's like remodeling your house when a wildfire is two blocks away. Great, you've got a nicer house that's going to burn to ash. Our needs being met only makes sense in a world where God is gonna come and ultimately set all things right. So when we pray for daily bread, forgiveness and protection, we pray this under the umbrella of the worship and will of God because he loves us so much and takes so much joy in us and we take our joy in him. So let's, let's talk about these requests. Verse 11, Jesus says we should pray, give us this day, give us this day our daily bread. In the first century when this was written, it seems that most people in the world were paid daily to meet needs daily. You didn't get paid every couple of weeks and it cropped up in a bank account every two or four weeks. You did your work that day and at the end of the day, you'd receive your daily wage with which you would then go to the markets and buy things that you needed for the next day. It was literally a day-to-day proposition. So imagine if you got sick for three days and couldn't work. That could be catastrophic. Not working today means I might starve tomorrow or turn it into something good and just say I'm fasting. But either way, their daily needs were typically, for most people, met daily. So this prayer was not just theoretical for for much of its original audience. It was a very real thing. God, today, I pray that I will be able to work, and I pray that my boss will be just and pay me at the end of the day, because if he doesn't or he says I'm short on funds, I'm out of luck. Give us this day our daily bread. And also, this daily bread thing, for the Jewish people who heard this, that term daily bread would have had an immediate hyperlink to a very powerful image in their history. Do you remember the story in Exodus 16 where they don't have food? They're wandering around in the wilderness, 40 years wandering around in the wilderness, and they need food. So what does God give them every morning? Manna. It's just, manna just means what is it because they didn't know what it is. This is stuff that was on the ground that they could go and gather every day and make food, make bread out of it. Daily bread. So God met their needs daily, every morning. They would walk outside and there would be their food. But he didn't just provide them their bare necessities and their daily provision. God also limited their gathering. If you read that story, you'll see that God says, every day, only gather that which your family needs, a portion for each person, this much, no more. And on Fridays, you can gather double so that you don't have to work on Saturday, the Sabbath, when they weren't supposed to work. But each day, you gather only what you need, and that's all. If people gathered more or tried to hoard it, you know what happened to it? 
it would stink and become maggot infested. So not only is God saying, I will give you enough, he's saying, I'm gonna put a cap on what you consume. And I think that's the part that is much more applicable to most people sitting in this church right now. Now, not all of us. Some of us, man, it's day to day to day to day, and it's a, it is a grind. And I pray for those people. And we wanna help people who are in that situation, because that's what the church of God does, amen? But so many of us have in our bank accounts already enough to cover many days. So the prayer here for maybe many of us isn't, God, give me the bare minimum of what I need. Maybe it's God, teach me the limit of what I consume. This prayer isn't just asking God to supply what we need. It's asking him to give us wisdom on limiting what we use. When do we ever pray that God would give us the wisdom to know the limits of what we should eat, what we should spend, what we should store? I'm gonna ask you a horrific question that's gonna haunt the mind of every modern American Christian. Are you ready? This is worse than a horror movie. Brace yourself, maybe hold the hand of the person next to you. What if a portion of what in you, is in your bank account cupboards pantry, and garage isn't for you? What if it was delivered to you, but the name on the address is not Travis? The name on the address is someone else in need, another brother or sister in Christ, someone that is in deep need, who has medical bills that are piling up. You may or may not know them. What if the money in your account isn't all for you? Anyone feeling defensive? What if God has given you a gift to be passed on? And when we pray this way, it sets up this beautiful balance. God, I trust you to give me enough for today. And it's not just food and money to pay the bills and a house and clothes. It's not just that. It's also emotional needs and relational needs. Give us what we need today, Father. Yes, God, would you provide the bare minimum? But would you also define my maximum? Do I trust God when he says, you've consumed enough? You've spent enough on you. So when I pray this prayer, Almost always, I'm asking God, Father, give me wisdom to limit my consumption because perhaps everything you've given me isn't for me. I'm not great at that. That is not natural to me. But I'm praying he'll change me. He moves on and then really elucidates one of our greatest needs. Verse 12, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Friends, something is very broken at a very deep level in, in ourselves and in our culture. Many of us have lost touch with the reality that we need to be forgiven. 
the new common sense is that I'm fine. What I feel, what I think, what I want, what I do is fine if it fulfills me. I define what is good and bad for me, and if something in my environment is in friction with that, what I want, then it is my environment that needs to change, not me. And this can be very subtle and very destructive. It seems that we're losing as a culture, and even as Christian culture, that we're losing the ability to say, I am wrong, I am broken, the problem is with me. And so every time we become unhappy, what do we do? We seek to change our circumstances rather than our sinfulness. The irony here is that the problem will never be fixed and I'll never be happy because the problem is me. I'm unhappy, so I'm gonna change everything around me because it's not me. I'll change everything around me. I'll start new. I'll do something different. I'll change my friends. I'll, I'll change my church, whatever. Put whatever you want on it, and I'm gonna go somewhere else. And, and, and it's amazing. We go there, and then we find the same problems and unhappiness. Why? Because we brought it with us. The change doesn't need to be the environment around us most of the time. Most of the time, the change needs to be repentance and asking for forgiveness. God, change me. Forgive me and make me like Jesus. So we need to ask God for forgiveness. Has he already paid the price to forgive us? Yes. But does that mean we don't ask for it? When we've done something new, how would that work in a relationship where you knew that person's always gonna forgive me, but every time you wronged them, you didn't say, will you forgive me? How does that work? That's not a good relationship. Has God already forgiven you because of what Jesus has done on the cross? Yes. But you still need to talk to him about it. He's your father. The sense of this request, and this is where it gets, oh, hallelujah. The sense of this request is, Father, look at how I've forgiven others and then let that be the extent to which you forgive me. Forgive our debts as in the same way we also have forgiven our debtors. That's what that means. Don't try to get around it. Don't try to explain it away. It's uncomfortable, I know. God, forgive me in the same way that you see me forgiving others is what that request actually means. So this request then is a prayer that I would be both forgiven and forgiving. As a disciple of Jesus, there is no other way to be. How can I be a disciple of Jesus and yet withhold one of the most essential elements of his gospel from others? Forgiveness. Have you ever considered that maybe the greatest way to share the love of Jesus, the greatest way to do what people would call evangelism, maybe the greatest way to do that is to forgive people and to have others see you forgiving other people who don't deserve it. Do any of us deserve forgiveness? No. Forgiveness is not something deserved. Forgiveness is something given by grace. 
maybe the greatest proof that God is love and he loves people. Maybe the greatest proof for those who don't believe or have not trusted in God yet is when they see Christians living out the gospel with forgiveness of each other and with others. Jesus said, blessed are the merciful for they will receive mercy. It is those who have truly been forgiven that can truly forgive from the heart. This prayer, this section, is the only part of the prayer that Jesus gives any further commentary on. In verses 14 and 15, let's skip there real quick. He says, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your Father in heaven will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Jesus, could you not have said that, please? Why did you have to say that? Now, let's struggle with this just for a second together. Do those words of Jesus sound a little bit like conditional forgiveness? Maybe a little bit like works-based forgiveness, I gotta do something to be forgiven? Does anyone else in here struggle with those words? Am I the only one? All of you just get the heart of God Perfectly, yeah. I have struggled with those verses for a very long time because it sounds a little bit like Jesus is saying, if you want me to forgive you, here's what you must do. Perform, forgive, and then I'll forgive you. Does this teaching of Jesus contrast with what seems like the rest of the New Testament is saying that you are saved and forgiven not by what you do, but by faith? My answer is an emphatic no. It is not at odds with it at all. Even Paul, in the quintessential passage on salvation by grace through faith, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, affirms all that Jesus says here. Look at it, or listen to it. Ephesians 2, 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. But keep reading, church. For because we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You see, the grace of God not only forgives us out of condemnation, but also forgives us into the good, gracious, merciful, forgiving work of God. Forgiveness doesn't stop with you, it goes through you. In these verses, Jesus makes it very clear that forgiven people are forgiving people. Now, struggle with forgiveness is normative in the Christian experience, or else why would Jesus be talking about it so emphatically? Is it hard to forgive people? You can answer that. Is it hard to forgive people? Is it going to be a struggle? Are you going to hell if it's not a struggle? Or if, it's, if it is a struggle? No. Of course it's a struggle. Of course it's a process. I didn't forgive them overnight. Okay, got it. We can work on this. Struggling with forgiveness is normal, but a person who has truly received and absorbed the gift of incredible grace will always have a bent towards extending that same grace. However, 
a stubborn unwillingness to have a heart, will, and actions bent towards forgiveness may be a sign that you have not actually experienced the forgiveness of God. If you are stubbornly unwilling to forgive others, perhaps it's because you don't know what forgiveness is and you haven't experienced it. I think that's what Jesus might be saying here. That a person who has truly been forgiven, a person who has been loved much, gives much, forgives much. And so if you find yourself digging your heels in and saying, I will not forgive the people who have wronged me ever. I wonder, I'm not saying this, but I wonder if perhaps you have not come into deep contact with the forgiveness and grace of God. That's for you and God to work through. A kingdom citizen is one who feels the sting of offense, but has a heart that is oriented towards mercy. It's not easy, it takes time, but our hearts are oriented towards mercy. And it's a process. So after dealing with past sins that we've already committed, the disciple of Jesus prays for protection against future sin. We pray for future mercy. God. You've already forgiven me for what I've done, but protect me from what I might do. Verse 13, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This begs the question, would God actually lead us into temptation if we didn't ask him to? Does God tempt people? James says he doesn't. God does not tempt us. So this, I think, is a very understandably misunderstood verse. My view is that the way this is said is a literary device of contrast and emphasis. The first phrase, lead us not into temptation, paints a picture of us moving toward temptation and being surrounded by temptation. And the second phrase, in essence, says, no, not that, deliver us out of it. By first suggesting that the direction that we are all on is moving towards temptation, being surrounded by temptation, this request to deliver us from that is made more urgent. It's not that God would lead us into temptation, although God does allow us to be tested. That's what the word means, tested, tried, tempted. We're asking him not that, but deliver me from it. but let's not miss the forest for the trees. What does this request say about the heart of the disciples of Jesus, his kingdom citizens? It says that a kingdom citizen gratefully accepts forgiveness, but prefers deliverance. I will accept the grace, great, I will gratefully accept the grace of God when I sin, but I much prefer to be delivered out of it before I ever do it. That's what kingdom citizens desire. What do we do with this prayer? Do we just say it verbatim every day as a script for prayer? Just say it and be done? Or do we use it as just a template for the kinds of things we might be praying about? Which, which should we do? Both. Both. I think the beauty of this prayer being prayed in its exact form, verbatim, 
is that we can pray it together. Just remember, look at the grammar. Our Father in heaven, give us this day our daily bread. We can pray this together and let God sink our hearts into the same prayer. In fact, that's what we do when we sing worship songs. It's just synchronized prayer. We're making requests and worshiping God. How do we do that all together with one heart and one spirit and one voice? We put it to music, we put it to meter, we put it to a beat, and then we sing it together. We pray it together. We should pray more in church. That's what the 20 to 25 minutes of singing is all about, together. So when we pray this prayer together, verbatim, it brings us together. How beautiful for the people of God's church to be able to, in groups of two or 200, be able to pray these words of Jesus all together. And I also believe that in giving us this prayer, Jesus is modeling for us the most essential things that the heart of a disciple will ask for, that we should pray daily each one of these themes. How this has worked out for me is that most every morning I will pray verbatim each line. But then after that, I will pause and I will go off script, so to say, and deeply expand on each request. Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. God, I worship you. You are worthy of my worship. There's no other being in all of the universe that is worthy. And I want my life to be defined today by worshiping you, by obeying you, by reflecting your goodness, God, hallowed be your name. It's both. And I work through that prayer every day because I find my mind wandering. Anyone else? Right now, because Travis is talking really long. Also, uh, I find my mind wandering. This keeps me in God's throne room like nothing else ever has. Praying about things that are important to God's heart and to my heart. And remember, all of this is about being close to our Father and faithful to his mission. Amen. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you feel inspired and moved by what God is doing here at Crosspoint. Point.